Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. This is Jonathan Doolin, here once again with Dr. Stan May, exploring some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. Just to give you a little bit of context, remember that we're in the Exodus era. The tabernacle has been constructed. Much of the law has been given up to this point, though there's still more um, to come. The first question that we want to consider today is from February 27th. How does the Lord organize the tribes in the camp? And why is the tribe of Judah mentioned first? It's a beautiful picture, Jonathan. The idea that God, when he establishes the camp, he is a God of order, which will come out through all of this discussion this week. Um, he is a God of order. And so the first thing he does is establish a distance between all of the tribes and the tabernacle. His intention is the tabernacle be central so that there will be three tribes organized on each of the four compass points. There will be tribes to the north, the west, the east, and the south. And, but it's to remind Israel that God's presence is in the very midst of his people. And the reason that Judah is chosen first goes all the way back to Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Judah is announced by Jacob when he gives the blessings. He begins to say that his brothers will bow down to him that a ruler will come forth from Judah and, and, and rulers will come until Shiloh comes. And so Judah, has God has given him a place of prominence among the tribes, so it's no surprise that he's called to lead. And so the, the tribe of Judah is raised up as the leader. Uh, so this is a beautiful picture, again, of God giving a separation, a distance between every tribe and the and the and the tabernacle, but then every tribe is equally arranged. If you think about it this way, three to the north, three to the west, three to the south, three to the east, and therefore each tribe is equidistant from the tabernacle, so all the tribes are equal. Judah simply has the responsibility of leadership. Two interesting thoughts on that one. Um, as we've talked about before, you know, throughout the entire Bible, we see this theme that God wants to be with his people. Yes. He wants to dwell with his people. You see him with Adam and Eve in the garden. You see him with his people in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, and so this is just a picture of that, a precursor Amen. of things to come. And then the other thing is Moses, who establishes all this through God's leadership, he's not from the tribe of Judah. No. He's a Levite. Um, so anyway, it's just interesting, the humility of Moses even in this. The next question is, how does God's planning and organizing of tribes and duties reflect earlier stories in the biblical narrative where God provided structure and order? Well, as we said, this, this idea of order flows throughout what God's doing because God delights in order. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that God is a God of order. He's not a God of disorder. He's a God of order. And that order is reflected as we go back all the way to the creation story. We see that order reflected in solar systems, night and day, seasons, reproduction according to kind, uh, the, the plan for future reproduction, even in our amazing bodies. As you and I were talking earlier today, the um, amazing thing is the more we get to know, the more we learn, the more we realize how little we actually know, that our bodies are orderly, or, 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 so orderly, so structured, 13 
disparate systems functioning together to make this body work perfectly demonstrates God's love of order. And, and then when you look in, Mo, in, in Noah's story, all the way back to Noah, we see God giving a structure for the ark, not just build a big boat, but build a boat with three sections and build a boat with one door and build a boat with a window and and build a boat out of a certain material and cover it in a certain way so that it will be waterproof. God's order just shines through the story and he loves order. And because he does, he, it's no surprise that again and again, we're gonna see these this order pop up. It's no surprise that there's order in the church because mm-hmm. God is a God of order and he's establishing order for his people. They're gonna march in an order. They're gonna camp in an order. They're going to fight in an order. They're going to occupy the land in an order. Hmm. Amen. This just reveals to us again that God cares for us enough to tell us what he expects from us. Um, you know, He even in, you mentioned the church, we know how to come to the Lord because he's told us. To yes, that. yes. Um, uh, and the next question is, what test does the Lord require of the jealous husband that prevents him from acting on suspicion alone? How does this test reflect God's care for women? Well, the test begins when a man suspects that his wife has been unfaithful. And in all of our lives, we're prone to unreasonable, unreasoning suspicions. We may have a bad day. We may think something happened that didn't happen. We may disparage other people's motives of us. God knows that. And in the ancient world, it is especially troubling. You know, we we have the, the humorous comedies like Monty Python and others that show women be show women being accused of being witches and and those are humorous but they reflect the reality of the ancient world that women were mistreated that women were maltreated and often on suspicion alone women could be divorced or even killed hmm. god establishes a test the man can't just assume that his wife has been uh, unfaithful, and then divorce her. He's got to take her to a test. And the test is a very interesting test because he, the priest takes dirt from the floor of the of the, of the the uh, t- tabernacle where there's blood and all that mixed in from the killing of animals. And some people have said through the years that if our bodies have guilt, these these chemicals can affect us adversely. If they don't, they'll pass right through. Mm. And so it may be that that's, that test reveals whether that, that guilt shows up in the system. If it doesn't, that woman is free. If it does, and this is what the test says, that you know, for guilt, it'll expose it, that uh, she'll be shown for what she is. But if not, not only can the husband, um, must he receive her back, but he can't divorce her all his days if he ever accuses her. So God... It shows his intricate care and protection for women by not allowing men to act merely on suspicion or ideas. He has to act according to a test that God prescribes. We were talking earlier, and this either establishes or maybe just affirms um, an understanding that we have in our Western system that a person is innocent until proven guilty instead of the opposite. Absolutely. Uh, And then the next question we want to deal with is, what does the high priest's blessing on Israel teach us about God's name and his attitude toward his people. One of the interesting thing that happened as Judaism progressed is that the name of the Lord, the covenant name of the Lord came to a place where 
pious Jews would not even pronounce it. That's mm-hmm. true today. They won't. They will use Adonai instead of the covenant name. They won't pronounce it. In a way, I think there's a loss there because it's it's used almost nine thousand times in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm which tells us God intended that his name be used. The prophets spoke in his name. The people prayed in his name. And especially here, the priest pronounced the blessing over the people in the name of Yahweh, the, the, the God of Israel, who is different from every other God. His personal name shows his covenant love for his people and establishes them as his people. And he commanded the high priest to bless his name over his people so that they are identified with him uniquely. Mm-hmm. This is an incredible gift because what this blessing demonstrates to us is that God wants his favor to be upon us. He wants us to enjoy the shining of his face, the, that, the experience of living in the light of his love and his glory and his grace. That's his desire for his people. He He's not, you know, we we have tended to mischaracterize our God in the Old Testament as aloof, uncaring, and even cruel. Mm-hmm. And yet here, he makes clear, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord give you peace. Lift up his countenance over you and give you peace. God wants his people to live in the joy of an intimate personal relationship with him and the high priest is to pronounce that on a regular basis over God's people. Amen. Amen. The next is from one of the most disappointing stories um, in this era. Uh, when the scouts return, what do they report and reveal about their priorities? Um, um, let me ask that again. Sorry, I read it wrong. When the scouts return, what do their reports reveal about their priorities? One of the things that happens in this amazing story, and it's like you said, it's the saddest, perhaps the saddest story in the in the Exodus era, because it's the, it's the culmination of a series of rebellions that have been going on, where people have rejected God's leadership and often said, "Let's go back to Egypt," and this is now what the Bible will tell us the tenth time that mm-hmm. God recalls that you know that the people have rejected Him. The sad story about this is the the, Scott, the scouts come back. And 10 of them have seen, well, all 12 of them have seen the same land, the same fruit, the same giants, the same cities. But 10 of them have let those giants and those walled cities so create fear in them that they're now ready to give up. They're ready to go back to Egypt. They're ready to reject the command of God they see themselves, they say this, we were like grasshoppers in their sight, and so we were in our own sight. They see themselves as just little crickets on the ground jumping mm-hmm. around. And and it reflects a heart that says their God is not able. Mm-hmm. I mean, it shows priorities that say we're more concerned about our safety mm-hmm. than we are about God's glory, and we're going to hide behind our children mm-hmm and use them as our excuse for not obeying God. Mm. Yeah, they, they, they think that they're going to go in. Though God has called them, he's delivered them up to this point, they think they're going to go in and take the land in their own strength, and they see that they can't do that. Right. So now, on the opposite end, why does Caleb's response... Uh, sorry. 
What does Caleb's response teach us about walking by faith in God's word and trusting his character? Well, Caleb is totally opposite spirit. In fact, the Lord says of him they had a they had a wholly different spirit. And 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 Caleb wholly followed the Lord. But Caleb's Caleb says, No, no, they're bred for us. They're, he says, their protection has departed from them. Caleb recognizes that God has sent them in to show them that they're already afraid, that they already know that they're a defeated people. They didn't come out and attack the spies wandering through the land, which tells us everything about them, that the spies traveled through Canaanite territory unmolested, 12 of them, and that that can't mean they were very secretive. I mean, they're carrying fruit between on staffs between their shoulders. They're not hiding very well. And they saw them and the enemy saw them, but they didn't come after them. And so Caleb recognized that the, that the nations there in Canaan were afraid. He recognized that God had already been at work. Canaan's, I mean, excuse me, Caleb saw Canaan as a place where God was already at work. And he was excited about what God was going to do. And he said, let's don't rebel against God. His whole heart was, his heart was Godward as as theirs was totally man-centered. His heart was totally Godward. What is the purpose of the tassels on the people's garments and what might serve that purpose for God's people today? Numbers 15 ends with a little, that little story about how that they're to make tassels. And there are several things said about those tassels. They're to be tassels of blue. They're to remind the people not to follow the harlotry of their own heart, but instead to listen to God's word. Well, we don't wear clothing that reminds us, but we have now the privilege of actually owning a copy of God's word in our own language, and we can open that word daily. And that daily practice, just as the Israelites would look at the ta- at the tassels and be reminded, don't follow your own heart, your heart is wicked. So as we open God's word, that is a daily reminder, a precious gift to us to say, listen to God. And so for me, the tassel of blue in my life is daily opening the scriptures first thing in the morning and letting God speak to me so I know his ways instead of following the wickedness of my own heart. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Mack. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.